0: Anita and I were watching a TV show the other week, and in one of the episodes, one of the main female characters says in a moment of deep emotional anguish, this is not me, this is not who I am. In the show, she was talking, maybe more properly fighting, with her husband, saying how Deeply unhappy she was in their relationship, in her marriage, Uh, the life she was living, her family, her job, she wasn't being true to herself. And as the show progressed, she eventually left her husband and little girl in order to find true love with her childhood sweetheart. It's not an unfamiliar plot line in stories, It's not all that unfamiliar a tale in real life. This is not me. This is not who I am. What I've become is not my true identity. Uh, The Canadian Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor says, we live in an age of authenticity. Age of authenticity. Uh, Stephen McAlpine put out a book late last year called Being the Bad Guys. It's a book worth reading. In it, he explains what this age of authenticity means. He says, In our own age, authenticity is defined by how true you are to yourself. Not how true you are to your calling or your community or your covenant relationships, but to yourself. Uh, Does this sound familiar? We're encouraged to be ourselves. You do you. Uh, We need to look inside to find out who we are and then just let it go. Uh, This age of authenticity in the West has grown out of Christian soil. The Bible tells us to examine ourselves. Uh, This age of authenticity grows out of the soil of justification by faith alone. You're not saved by joining a club or by your nationality or your family, but only through personal, authentic faith in Jesus. Our age of authenticity, our cultural belief that our identity is found inside ourselves has grown up out of Christian soil. But it's not the whole story. And disconnected from the big story, the whole story of God, looking for identity within ourselves, leads us feeling lost and disconnected. Who are you? What would it mean for you to be the true you? And where does Jesus fit in all of this? Uh, the question of identity has already come up in our time in 1 Peter. We've been told right from the start who the people P- Peter is writing to really are. We've been told who Christians really are. So in chapter 1, verse 1, we're told the people Peter's writing to, their home isn't really in Cappadocia or Galatia because they're exiles. This world is not their true home. They have a better, a lasting inheritance and this is because of what God's done for them. He's chosen his people for salvation, declared us holy by the spirit and washed us clean by the blood of Jesus. Identity has been on the agenda since verse 1. And there's more in chapter 1 about the new birth into a living hope and being children of God. So we're called to be holy like he is. Identity has already been a key theme in 1 Peter, but in today's passage it comes to the front, who are you? Or maybe even better, who are we? Who are we as we are gathered together in the name of Jesus? And it's knowing Jesus that's the key to answering this question. In the first bit of chapter 2, which we looked at last week, we're told to crave pure spiritual milk because we've tasted that the Lord, the Lord Jesus, is good. Why is Jesus good? Well, we're told in the next verse it's because he's the foundation, the precious cornerstone of God's new temple. So have a look in your Bible at verse 4. So this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Who is Jesus? He's a living stone, a stone many people reject, but God doesn't. And he's precious and central to God's plan. Now, that's pretty weird, isn't it? That is a strange thing to say. Why would you say Jesus is a living stone? Well, Peter expands on this picture and explains it as he goes on. So in the next verse, Peter says, not only is Jesus the living stone, everyone who comes to him becomes stones in God's new temple. So verse five, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So who are believers? We're living stones being built into God's new temple. Now, some of you know a fair bit about building things. Now, this living stones, it's not saying we're just another brick in the wall. No, Jesus doesn't squash us and push us into some mould. It's not saying that to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, means we've all got to be the same. No, did you notice these are living stones? This is a very strange building because it's alive and growing. If you're a builder, you're probably pretty glad to not be building with living stones, because this spiritual house that God's building, which is another name for a temple, spiritual house means temple, God's temple isn't static, it's dynamic. It's growing as new living stones, as new people are added to it, and as each stone, each person, grows to maturity. And what does it say the job, the purpose of being a living stone is? It's to be a holy priesthood. Think back to the Old Testament. What did the Old Testament priests do? They'd offer sacrifices. Well, our job is also to offer sacrifices, not literal sacrifices, no lambs, no pigeons, no blood, but spiritual sacrifices, a sacrifice of praise, as Hebrews 13 puts it, or our whole life devoted to God, as Romans 12 puts it. That's our task, to offer spiritual sacrifices, not in the sense that they pay for sin. Jesus did that at once for all, but we live to God's glory, not our own. Now, this picture of a, of a temple, where's this come from? Why would Peter pick up this idea of being a a cornerstone of a temple and then living stones of a temple? Well, the story of temple is a big idea in the Bible. And we're going to run through pretty briefly kind of everything in the Bible about temple, but very, very briefly. When God made the world, he placed the man and then the woman, he places humanity in a garden temple a place where humanity could live with God. The picture in Genesis 2 is Adam is the priest-king in God's garden temple. But, Genesis 3, humanity fails. Adam fails to be the priest-king. He's tempted and he grasps to define himself as he wants to define his own identity rather than to be who God has made him to be. So humanity rejects God, and so Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. Then with Moses, God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt so that he can dwell with them. And he gives instructions to make a tent temple. And then in Solomon's time, it becomes a stone temple. And there are priests in this temple. They offer physical sacrifices to God And this temple within the promised land, this temple is the place humanity goes to be reconciled to God. Uh, This is the temple we heard about in our first Bible reading. Nice coincidence, we're just reading our way through the Psalms, but Psalm 122 says, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Let's go and praise the name of the Lord. That was what Israel was called to do, to go to the temple and praise God, but they fail. They sin. God's people worship idols, they offer tainted and blemished sacrifices, and so they're expelled from the land. And the temple, that temple made of stones, is destroyed. And then it's rebuilt, we won't go into that bit, but then Jesus, he blows the mind of the people who heard him speak. Because he says, you know what? I am... The temple, John 2.21, uh, 2, but the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. Because here in the living one, the Lord Jesus, we have the presence of God with his people. And Jesus is the priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the true temple. But the story is not complete yet. Because as we've just heard, as we come to Jesus, we become the living stones in God's temple, offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Some Christians believe God's plans are still focused on a physical place. That at some point in the future, a stone temple will be built in Jerusalem and sacrifices will be offered there once more. And they think that when we read things like Psalm 122, praying for the peace of Jerusalem, it's all about that occurring. That is not the big story of the temple. Yes, God is building a temple, a new temple, but 1 Peter 2, it's not out of bricks or stones. Its cornerstone is Christ, and you and I and every believer are the living stones in that temple. God is building a temple right here in Gympie and around the world. God is building his new temple. But not everyone's going to see this. So have a look back in 1 Peter 2 and verse 6. Verse 6 says, For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Uh, The cornerstone is the first stone of a building, the one that's placed first and everything uh, is set around it. Now this is a quote from Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28 is a chapter about God's judgment coming on his people. It says, God will punish his people, Israel, because they've rejected him, but he'll place a stone in Zion, in Jerusalem, and anyone who trusts in this stone won't get swept away in his judgment. But Isaiah warns in chapter 28, if you don't look If you don't like the look of God's chosen, precious cornerstone, if you turn your back on the one, sure, steady hope of salvation God provides, you will fall. Verse 7, Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. If you're walking down the road and it's a a bit uneven or a rock is out of place or the concrete's not level, it's easy to trip and fall. That's what happens with Jesus. Not everyone sees Jesus for who he is. They're not watching where they're walking. They're not seeing this precious cornerstone. In fact, it's not that they don't see him, they actually reject the cornerstone. Now, why is Peter talking about this? Why is he pointing this out? It's to comfort Christians. We're going to see next week some of the trials the Christians Peter's writing to, some of their trials are because they're being persecuted. There are people around them who have stumbled and fallen on the rock of Christ. They have rejected Christ, which in itself is a tragedy, But it also means some of them are making life hard for believers. They've stumbled on Jesus. They hate Jesus. They hate his people. And the point of verses 7 and 8 is take heart. Be comforted because this is all in God's plan. God is in control even of those who stumble and refuse to trust in Jesus and are now against you and making life hard for you. It's all in God's control. So what have we heard so far? Well, who is Jesus? He is God's chosen precious cornerstone of this new living temple. And even though many will reject Jesus, they'll stumble and fall on this cornerstone and and cause difficulty for Christians, God is in control. Because he's building his temple out of living stones. But what does it mean to be a living stone? Uh, The focus of verses 4 to 8 is on Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone. But what about the living stones? Who are we? Well, verses 9 and 10 tell us what it means to be God's people. Have a listen. This is verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We just heard about those who stumble and fall because that's what they were destined for. The great word in verse 9, but this is what you are. In these two sentences, it is packed full of stuff from the Old Testament, titles and words and pictures that were used to talk about God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament, and he's applying it to believers today. What Peter's saying is what was true of God's people before Jesus is fully true of God's people now. So let's go through those those titles, those pictures, uh, very briefly. First of all, it says that about being a chosen people. Well, Israel was a chosen people. In Genesis 12, God chose Abram and made promises to him and to his descendants. God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. God chose Jacob, who also was known as Israel, and he didn't choose Esau. And so the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, are God's chosen people. But then what do we see in 1 Peter 1, 1-2? Believers in Jesus are elect or chosen exiles. Like Abram, like Israel, believers in Jesus are the chosen people. Uh, next in verse 9, and we've got royal priesthood and holy nation. Well, let's have a listen to what God said about Israel in Exodus 19. I'll get it up on the screen there. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And what's going on there? God saves his chosen people from slavery in Egypt. And he's bringing them into the promised land, his promised land, so they'll be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God is calling these people to be what Adam failed to be, a kingdom of priests, faithfully serving God, not in that temple garden of Eden, but in the Eden of the promised land. And what does God want them to do as a kingdom of priests? Well, that goes back to Abraham as well. When God chose Abram, one of the promises was, Genesis twelve three, all peoples on earth, all peoples will be blessed through you. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests bringing blessing to the world. But they sinned, they failed. And we actually get that alluded to in verse 10. And this is the really hard part of what this is on about. It hits your heart. Uh, Those words about not a people and not received mercy are their quotes from the prophet Hosea. Hosea is a gut-wrenching book. In chapter 1, we read about two children born to the prophet, born to a wife who breaks covenant with him. God tells Hosea to name his two children. His daughter is called No Mercy. His son is called Not My People. No mercy, not my people. These names are a prophecy against Israel. It says God will no longer show mercy to them. They're going to be kicked out of the family, disinherited, disowned by God. As rough as it was for these kids, it was a much rougher message for Israel. Verse 10, 1 Peter 2 verse 10, recalls this judgment of God, but what's it say? Now in Christ, you are a people. And now in Christ, you have received mercy. Imagine you are a Jewish believer reading this. What's it saying? It's saying, in sin, that was your identity. God had spoken those words over you, but now in Christ, those horrible names have been taken away from you. And to Gentile, non-Jewish believers, what's it saying? Well, we never were God's people. We had no knowledge or hope of God's mercy, but Christ came to draw in people from every nation and every human identity, and he has mercifully made us his possession, his people, given us a new, true identity. Listen up. If you are trusting in Christ... Who are we? We are living stones in God's new temple. God's chosen people, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a special treasured possession of God. This is who we are. And we don't look inside to find this. This identity is given to us by Jesus. For us to be authentic to ourselves is to live into this identity. And what does verse 9 say that God's purpose is in redeeming people from every nation and making them his people and giving them an identity as a royal priesthood and holy nation? What does it look like to live into this identity? Well, verse 9 again, that you, that we, may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What does it mean to praise someone? It means to say how good, how impressive, how excellent someone is. When your child or grandchild brings home a good report card or they score a try, what do you do? You praise them. You you tell the child how impressed you are how great their achievement is. And then you you get on the phone and you tell your family, and when you're grabbing coffee with a friend, you find ways to just drop it into conversation because you don't want to boast, but you do anyway. Because it's good to praise people who deserve it. God deserves our praise. If you're trusting in Jesus, he has brought you from darkness into light. You used to be not my people, rejected by God. We used to be not received mercy, facing an eternity of hell and punishment, but God in Christ has rescued us, pulled us out of darkness, and given us a new, honoured identity as living stones in his temple, a kingdom of priests to serve him that we might shout out how good God is. So how do we praise God? Well, it's the same as we do with people. We praise God to God. We praise him as we gather to sing God's praises. And we praise him in prayer. We tell God what he's done and how we're amazed how excellent he is. Praise is linked to thankfulness, isn't it? Because we know who God is by what He's done. I think sometimes we get a bit worked up over this and we try to draw a line between the two and then we get a bit anxious because we think, oh, I'm okay at saying in prayer, thank you God for, but we get, feel a bit awkward with, and we don't know how to say we praise you for, but I think drawing a line just makes us anxious and get worked up over nothing because God reveals His excellencies in what He does. So who he is and what he's done, so what we thank him for and what we're going to praise him for, actually the two go together. God has brought us out of darkness. He's brought us into his life. That's worth praising him for. But we don't only praise God to God, we praise God to other believers. And this is really important because it encourages and builds each other up. Brothers and sisters, sometimes my faith is weak. Sometimes I forget who I am in Christ. Sometimes it is hard to get the praise of God out of our hearts and into our lips. Sorry, and out of our lips. And so we need to remind each other of how good God is. And that's why when we gather, we sing together. We're as much reminding each other and praising God to one another as we are praising God to God and we need to learn to do this in our conversation too. When we get together, whether it's church or Bible study or just catching up, our job, your job as God's royal priesthood is to declare God's praises to each other and also to non-believers. For many of us, evangelism or witnessing or whatever you want to call it, it's got a bad rap. We think evangelism is being obnoxious maybe standing on the side of the road, shouting at people, telling them they're all going to hell. 1 Peter 2 says, Our mission is to declare the excellencies of God. Evangelism is just telling people how good God is, what he's done for you through Jesus, and the offer of new life and a true identity that's for anyone who trusts in Jesus. So who are you? In our age of authenticity, people are often trying to work out who they are. What's my identity? Who am I really? And it's not a bad question, because we want to live in line with who we are. But it goes off the rails when we look within. God has given his people an identity. Identity isn't something we discover or develop, it's a, or develop, it's a gift. It's a good gift from God. To be authentic in Christ is to live out of who God says you are. So who are you? Are you someone who is stumbling and tripping over the rock of Christ? If that's you, God is extending and calling out to receive his mercy today. Or will you come to Christ and receive honour and a new true identity, an identity of light and life, an identity where we have a mission to offer spiritual sacrifices and declare to the world the praises of God. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We praise you for what you've done uh, in Christ and who you've made us to be. Help us see Jesus and honour Jesus as your precious cornerstone, the foundation for your new living temple. We praise you for showing mercy to us, not because we are worthy, but because Christ is. Thank you for drawing us into your people and giving us identity and purpose in Christ. Please help us live out our identity as your people, a holy, royal priesthood offering ourselves as spiritual sacrifices, telling people how good you are. Please help us to speak your praises to other Christians and to non-believers. For your glory's sake we ask. Amen.